Amen. Good morning. Good afternoon, Crossway. Uh, welcome to our second service. Uh, so Janet and I, uh, we are expecting our first child, a uh, daughter, uh, anytime now. So just as a disclaimer, if you see me running out of the room in a sudden panic, it's most likely because Janet has waved. Oh, she's here. If you hear screaming, then I'm running out, basically. Um, but, you know, this whole idea, uh, this concept of fatherhood, uh, or even just taking care of this new baby that's going to exist in the next uh, week or two, uh, it's very new to me. You know, I never had really siblings that I had to take care of, or I never really had a big extended families with, family with nephews and nieces who, you know, I, I never had to change a diaper or fix a install a car seat or discipline a kid or anything like that. So all this is new. And uh, my wife, Janet, knowing this, she signed us up for some baby classes uh, the last couple weeks. And, uh, you know, the baby classes were good. Um, It taught me a few things, like how to bathe uh, the baby and how to install the car seat and all that stuff. But in some ways, uh, it's actually made this... (laughs) It's prepared me in one way, but on on another hand... It's made this task feel even more daunting. Oh, there she Oh, sorry. Let's go there out. Uh, but in some ways, it's made this task feel even more daunting, right? Uh, one of the classes that I was taking, uh, that we were taking, it said uh, true or false as part of the test. Uh, if your baby cries for three hours straight, then you should take them to uh, the doctor. And uh, what, do you, what do you guys think? True or false? True? True, I mean, true, right? Of course, they're crying in three hours. The answer was false. They said, typically, babies can cry at least up to three hours, and it's not a big deal. And I thought, not a big deal? <laughs> three hours? And they turned on, like, one of those uh, a little radio with the baby crying for about two minutes, and I thought, oh, my gosh, this, is this for three hours? And it, it really hit me. Uh, it kind of scared me. Uh, they talked about, uh, you know, multiple choice question of like, how many diapers do you think you're going to have to change in a day, right? It was like, I don't know, 6 to 10 or 8 to 10 or 12 or 12 to 14. And obviously the answer is 12 to 14, right? You're like changing a diaper every other hour and they're sleeping every other hour. So basically you're just changing them every single time they're awake. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's a lot of diapers to change. All that to say... I'm entering into this new world of just constant fatigue, constant sadness and depression, (laughs) and a mental, emotionally, physically draining situation. And it feels daunting, right? (laughs) My wife's looking at me like, all the other moms are like, oh, he's not going to sweat. But anyhow, um, but what helps me, obviously, you know, is, you know, God's work praying and all that stuff. But another aspect that really helps me is for me to look at the fathers, the dads that are at our church. And I don't mean this in a negative way, like, oh man, if he can do it, then surely I can do it, right? It's not like that. But the idea is that uh, these dads that have gone through it before me, I can look to as an example to see, to know that there is going to be a light at the end of the tunnel. That it can be done, that you won't die or faint or whatever it is, right? That you can handle it. 
And not only that, you know, I feel like as I'm looking around and seeing the fathers in our church, I see dads that have gone through it, have survived, but not only that, they've done it well, right? You see the characteristics of a great dad in each of the different dads that I meet here. And their patience, their empathy, their ability to provide uh, security or a, a place of trust, uh, compassion, whatever it might be, I see that. And it encourages me as I see the people who have gone before me, right? Now, <clears throat> the reason why I share this is because as we look at the book of Hebrews, this is in effect what the author is doing as he talks about our Christian walks, as we walk this Christian faith. There are moments in our lives as we walk this journey where we will feel like it's very daunting, where it will be stress or anxiety inducing, and we'll feel like, man, I can never, I can't get past this stage. It, this, is, this is just too much for me to bear. And what the author of Hebrews has us do in chapter 11 is he has us look at the people who have preceded us, people in the faith that have walked before us and who have done it well, and he encourages us by looking at those lives. And so he looks at people like Moses and Joseph and Samson and all these people. He says, look at their faith. Look how they walked before you. And Bible nerds will call this the hall of faith, like the hall of fame, but the hall of faith. But we just have all these awesome people who have walked faith before you that you can turn to for an example and encouragement and strength. And what we see in our uh, verse today, in our passage today, is that he highlights Abraham. He looks at Abraham, the father of many nations. He, he says, look to him during times of trial and difficulty as you're walking this faith journey. Now, there's two things that I wanted to share about his faith, right? Two qualities about his faith. And if you have the bulletin inside, there should be a little insert. In the insert, you can fill along as you go, if you'd like. Uh, but there's two qualities of Abraham's faith that was commendable, that, that the author of Hebrews says, I want to really highlight these aspects of his faith to encourage you in your spiritual journey, right? The first one is this. Abraham's faith was commendable because he obeyed in uncertainty and discomfort. He obeyed in uncertainty and discomfort. Look at verse 8 and 9. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place where he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Now, let me back up for those of you who are not familiar with uh, <clears throat> the story of Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, uh, God calls Abraham from amongst all the people and he says, I choose you. I choose you to be a, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to others, right? And I am going to work in your life. And he gives them a call. And this is the call he gives them in verse 2, chapter, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So God calls him out. And like it says in verse 8, it was, he, did not, he didn't know where he was going. God said, I'm going to send you out. You're going to be a great nation. And Abraham, what did he do? He packed his bag, grabbed his family, and went out. 
even in uncertainty, even not knowing where he was going. You know, for me as a type A, this feels so irresponsible, right? You, you didn't plan where you're going. You don't know what direction you need to be going, what you need to pack. This, this is just totally irresponsible. But this was the act of faith. And on top of that, when he arrives to the area that God's calling him, they said he, uh, he, he lived in tents. And when he lived in tents, that's the ultimate sign of temporary housing, right? It wasn't because he didn't have the money, but it was because God hadn't shown him exactly where he wanted to be yet. It was unknown. And so he was living in these tents waiting for God's call. And not only was it uncertain, it was uncomfortable and possibly even dangerous, right? It says in verse 9 that he was not knowing where he was going, but also he was living in a foreign land. That he would enter into a place that he didn't know the culture, he didn't know the language. When he and his family walked out, they would know right away that he was not from there. He could possibly be uh, beaten or robbed or uh, exiled, whatever it might be. But he goes out in the midst of uncertainty and danger. Now, for us, you know, it's hard to conceptualize this, I think, because this is so long ago. But I think if I were to put it in modern terms, it would be kind of like this. If maybe you had a house in Chino, right? And you had this great big house, you know, four bed, three bath, and it's huge. And you're living very comfortably. And then all of a sudden, God calls you out to go to downtown L.A., right? Sell all your possessions and to go rent a, a one-bedroom junior suite with your family, and because of the HOA, you know, that's pretty much all you can afford with the money that you sold your house from. And not only that, you know, he's calling you to live in downtown L.A., right next to Skid Row, where it might be a little dangerous, where the schools on greatschools.org are only one or twos. Some, some of them have NAs, not available. The ranking's out of 10, just so some of you guys are not clear. One means it's bad. Not number one, right? And God's calling you to this place. And, you know, for us, I think that makes a lot of sense for us. Like, we can visualize it because for those of us who care about these kind of things, uh, you know, raising a family and wanting them to be in a good place, to take our family to a place that's uncomfortable because it's going to be a one-bedroom, uh, it's going to be dangerous because you're going to be next to Skid Row, the schools are not that good, so it's not a great place for your kids. And God's saying, I want you to be there. Uh, I feel like that resonates with us a little bit more. You know, as people being in Orange County, you know, I don't know if you guys maybe lived in the city and moved down to Orange County, but the OC, the values are, you know, security, safety, uh, being comfortable, right? And those aren't bad things, but the difficulty is when they become idols, right? When they become the very things that uh, guide all of your decision-making and how you make choices in life, where God is calling you to this way, but, oh, no, but that's too uncomfortable, or that's not safe, or uh, I don't feel a lot of security going that way, so I don't know if I can go that way. When it starts to conflict with God's call, it becomes an idol, right? Ultimately causing you to sin. Now, again, I'm not saying that seeking comfort and safety and security. I'm not saying those are bad things, but when they become the priority, they can become idols, which can then become sin. 
What's interesting is uh, C.S. Lewis in a book called Screwtape Letters. It's a fictional book of, that he writes about this guy, this uh, uncle demon. His name is Screwtape, and he's writing to his nephew demon, uh, Wormwood. And he's writing to him, teaching him the ways of the demon, right? How to be a great demon as you're growing up. And one of the things that he says that I think is so insightful for our, our lives is this. He says, you know, I know as a young buck, as a young demon, you want to cause the people you're tempting to fall into these spectacular sins like murder or these crazy crimes or whatever it is. But you have to remember the purpose of these sins, right? And he says this, if you could read it with me or just follow along. This is... Um, Screwtape saying, you will say that these are very small sins, and doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. The enemy he's referring to is God. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. He says, the safest road to hell is a gradual one. And he goes on to say, even before this, that if your person that you're tempting goes to church and stays in church, that's even better because then on the exterior, they're doing all the things that they might feel secure in. Their hearts are falling further and further and further away from God. And I wonder, you know, in the life that we live today, with the values of the OC life, of being secure, being safe, being comfortable, all those things, again, those aren't bad things, but could they be idols in our lives that push us away from what's God, what God's calling us to and to the point where we don't even recognize it because it's such a slow, soft, gradual slope. You know, it's not something that I can say is true about, you know, you or you or you or someone in our church, but it's something that we have to evaluate in our own hearts. Do we value the culture and the things of the OC lifestyle that when God calls to something that's dangerous, that God calls something unsafe or uncomfortable or un, un, almost it feels irresponsible, do we hesitate? Do we turn away from God's word? Uh, this past weekend uh, was MLK weekend, and you know on Instagram there was a lot of people that posted a lot of quotes, and I thought this one quote was so powerful, and I spoke directly to this, and it says this, the end of life is not to be happy, nor to achieve pleasure or to avoid pain. Right? But the end of life is to do the will of God, come what may. I thought that was so powerful. The end of life is not to be happy, nor to achieve pleasure and avoid pain, but to do the will of God. And he says, come what may. Come what may. If there's danger, come what may. All I want to do is do the will of God. This is why Abraham's faith was commendable. Because when God had called him out of Haran, where it was, he was living the suburb life. It was easy. He had a lot of cattle, a lot of sheep, and all that stuff, just like Chino. 
God called him to Canaan. God called him. I'm not bashing on Chino, by the way. I, I like Chino. Okay? God called him to the city of Canaan. A place that was dangerous, a place where he would be a foreigner, a place that was uncomfortable, a place that was uncertain. And Abraham picked up and he obeyed. That is the call. And he says, the author of Hebrews says, to look at the example of Abraham. He said, come what may. And he left and he obeyed. Now secondly, Abraham's faith is commendable because he attempts to do impossible things for the Lord. Right? It's commendable. Abraham's faith is commendable because he attempts to do impossible things for the Lord. Now, uh, I don't see any children here, so I, I'm not going to give you guys the sign to do earmuffs, but there's a moment where you might need to do some earmuffs, okay? God promises Abraham that he will be a great nation, right? If we look back, remember in Genesis chapter 12 too, he says, uh, I will make you a great nation, I will bless you and make your name great so you will be a blessing. So if you want to be a great nation, there's two things that are required. The first is that you need land, right? And we saw this in the first promise, right? God's sending him out from Haran, Haran to Canaan, and he's, he's going to give him this land, right? But the second thing that he needs are descendants. He needs children, right? Those are the two things to be a great nation. You need the land for your kingdom, but you also need the children and descendants uh, to have a great nation, right? And we see this promise throughout Genesis. Chapter 17, verse 4, he says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. In verse 17, he says, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Right? So God's promising this. God says, I promise this in your life. You will be a great nation, you'll have the land, and you'll have descendants. Now, here's the problem. The problem was that when the promise was given, Abraham was 85, and Sarah was 75. Uh, scripture says that they were past the age of bearing children. So when Sarah hears this promise, she laughs, right? In chapter 18 of Genesis, verse 12. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And Hebrews 11, 11, By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who, had, who has promised. So they were past the age of conceiving. But if God himself promises you descendants, as numerous as the sands of the seashore and the stars in the sky, what do you do? You act, right? Now this is the earmuff part, right? What, what is the action that you must do to continue to bear this promise out? You have to do the deed, right? You have to, I'll just leave it at that. You have to do the deed. You know, this isn't the immaculate conception. This isn't a virgin birth. They have to come together and sleep together in order for a baby to be produced. And so we see at their late age, when Sarah herself is laughing like this is impossible, at their late age, it says that they did they went, out, they went out and did the deed. And they did it for 15 years because Isaac was born at, when Sarah was 90 and Abraham was 100. 
the impossible was done. And when you think about this, this, this was difficult for them. It wasn't something that was easy for them. That they had to try for 15 years, and even in the middle of it, uh, they had to step back and say, is this really what God wants for us? Because we've been trying for so long, and it just hasn't happened. And so they're thinking, maybe, Abraham, you need to sleep with my servant. And if you sleep with my servant, you'll bear a child. And they did. He said, maybe that's the descendant that God wants. And so they were trying to figure it out themselves. But later God reaffirmed and says, no, that's not how my promise is going to be fulfilled. It's going to be fulfilled through Sarah and Abraham having a child. And it was fulfilled 15 years later. Now, this makes for a very bad transition for our practical application. Um, uh, You know, I'm not, we're not saying to do the exact things that are stated here, but I think we have to get the principle that is coming out of this passage. Um, The principle that we find in this passage is that when God calls you to a promise that he will honor it, and that even when things feel impossible, that he will honor it, that if you act in faith, that God will honor the promise that he makes. So what are the things that we can do in boldness to attempt? What are the impossible, seemingly impossible things that we can attempt for his glory and for his kingdom? Uh, There was this one time uh, right out of college, uh, my church and I, we went out to Honduras. We went on a missions trip. And we were planning this big revival, and right before we had uh, these few students come in there, I think they were about high school age, about four or five guys and girls, and me and my friend, we thought, oh, this is the perfect time, let's go share the gospel with them, right? And you know, this is in Honduras, so they speak Spanish, and you know, my Spanish is very limited, but we just kind of felt like, you know, this is what, you know, God's introduced this opportunity. And so we go, we sit them down, and we're sharing the gospel with them, and you know, tu crees Jesucristo, you know, we're not conjugating anything, we're just kind of saying basic words, and tu pecadores, I don't, I don't know if that means you're a fish or you're a sinner, uh, but we meant to say you're a sinner, uh, you know, and we're going through the gospel, we have these four points that we're trying to share, and the whole time, you know, they're fooling around, they're laughing at our Spanish, they're messing with each other, all that stuff, and so we're just going through the motions. We're like, you know what, this, let's just do it. You know, let's just finish this. And at the end, we just say, okay, tu recibes Jesucristo en tu corazón? And they say, yes. And they're just being polite. And say, okay, let's pray. So we say, recite after us. And we have this written thing that we're uh, reading that they're supposed to recite if they accept Christ. And everyone's just kind of not really saying it, but they're just talking. But there's this one guy out of the whole group. He's praying. He's reciting the lines line by line as we're saying and and he's saying it like you could tell when someone means it right when they're saying he means it and we're praying we're kind of like like looking at him like oh dude this guy's seriously doing it and so he's praying and then we finish you know and we say okay did you receive jesus christ into your heart and everyone's like yeah yeah and then he says i'm a sinner i i don't deserve this you know i don't deserve what christ has done for me but because of what he's done, and I trust in him, I'm, I'm saved. 
And we were just blown away, right? And it was a reminder of a promise that God gave us in his word, right? In Isaiah 55, it talks about when God's word goes forth, it will not return empty. It will not be in vain when God's word goes forth. And we saw that, a promise of God. And I wonder, what other promises can we find in God's word as we search and as we pray to him that God's going to call us to? Impossible things, seemingly impossible things that by his power, that by his guidance, we'll begin to see things that are being done for his glory and for his kingdom. Are, are there people maybe in your life that you maybe have stopped praying for, that you think, man, they'll never accept Christ. You know, I've tried talking to them. I tried sharing the gospel with them. I tried bringing them to church. I tried all these different things, but they've never accepted Christ, and they never will. You know, are there people that you feel like this is impossible with? Or maybe as you're thinking about this summer and you're like, oh, yeah, the missions trips and all that stuff sound really exciting, but... There's no way. It's impossible for me to be able to fit it in my schedule. There's just no way. Or there's an opportunity for you to give and to serve, but you're like, it's impossible. I don't have the time. I don't have the resources, the financial capabilities. There's no way, no possible way that I can do these things. And yet, what we see in God's promises that when he promises and when he calls you to go and serve and live for his glory and for his kingdom, that these things that seem almost impossible will be done and accomplished because of God's faithfulness. This is why the author of Hebrews says to look at Abraham, look at his faith, look how he is willing to even attempt the impossible things because he knows that God is able to accomplish those things. Now, when we look at Abraham's faith and as I'm wrapping up. Truly, Abraham's faith is commendable, right? You look at his faith, and he's willing to go out, even when things are uncertain, things are difficult, when things are dangerous, even when things seem almost impossible, he goes out and he obeys and lives for the glory of God. And you look at that, and you're like, that's very commendable. But it's sometimes not as encouraging, because that's Abraham, right? I'm not like Abraham, you know. And furthermore, even the people in, the, in the chapter 11, the hall of faith, that's like trying to compare, you know, Michael Jordan and LeBron James to me. You're saying the most faithful people in all of the Old Testament, you're saying be like them when I'm just me, right? And you think about all the great things that they did. And you think about who you are. And you think, there's no way I can have that same type of faith. But I want to challenge you and hopefully encourage you to say that maybe that way of thinking is the crux of the problem, right? Because when you're looking at the life of Abraham and you see all the great things that he did and you compare all the things that you're doing in your life, maybe you're comparing the wrong thing, right? You're not supposed to be comparing the lives of Ab- the life of Abraham versus your life. Because if, even if you think about it, Abraham, he failed too. It's just not mentioned in the book of Hebrews, but Genesis is clear that when God called him, he said, I promise you this land, go and get it. You know what he did? He 
he was heading there, and then he actually, during a famine, he was unsure, and he was scared, and he just went straight down to Egypt, the complete opposite way. He, he failed in that way. Or, like I said earlier, when God promised that he would have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands of the seashore, him and Sarah decided, let's try to figure it out ourselves, and I'll sleep with the servant, which was not God's plan. You see, Abraham had his failures too. But what's commendable about Abraham's faith is that he wasn't comparing himself to anyone else and thinking, oh, all of these works I have to do by myself and there's so many things I have to do, but I'm going to do it and accomplish it by my own strength. But he was looking at how great his God was. And his faith was great, not because he did great things, but it was because he trusted in how great God was. And I think what I'm getting at is that for us, when we compare ourselves to Abraham, what we're doing is we're saying, I don't have it in me to do all the great things that Abraham did. Which is true. You don't have it in you. It's not about our own abilities. That's the crux of the problem. But what we need to understand is that the faith that we have is in a greater God. Verse 10, it says, For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. When God told Abraham, I'm going to turn you into a great nation, Abraham didn't say, okay, I need to do X, Y, and Z, make this plan, and figure out how I'm going to turn this promise into a great nation. I'm going to figure out myself. With my own strength, I'm going to create this great nation. No, he just obeyed, and he followed after God, because he knew, like I said, the designer and builder is God. God is the one who builds that. I want to close with this final quote that I thought was very uh, relevant for us. And James, or, and his name is James Hudson Taylor. He's a missionary to China. And he says this: "You do not need a great faith, but faith in a great God." And you and I, we serve a great God. And he calls us to have the faith, even, and Jesus says, as small as a mustard seed. He says, you can move mountains. But that's not depending on our own strength and our own power, but listening to the voice of God. You know, I think the book of Hebrews has two types. The audience is being persecuted, and they're facing all these trials. And I think there's two things that the author of Hebrews is doing. He's saying, uh, during those trials, have faith and don't give up. You know, don't uh, turn away from the faith. Don't uh, denounce uh, Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Persevere, right? I think that's one aspect of it. But I think what we see in chapter 11, and especially in the model of Abraham, is that he's not just telling us to persevere and get through it and survive, and don't, but he's saying, hey, you need to press on, right? You need to move forward. What has God called each and every one of us to do, and how can we attempt to do the things that seem impossible? How can we go and attempt the things even if they feel dangerous or uncertain or there's a uh, a lot of things that you have to figure out, but you're not sure how it's going to be figured out. And he says, how can we attempt to do great things for a great God? 
He's pushing us out now. He's not just saying, come with me, be secure in my love, be secure in my protection, in my security. But now he's saying, go out. Go and live for the will of God and come what may. And that's my question for us. What are the things that God is calling each and every one of us to do? What is he calling us to do in his word? As you're praying, what kind of convictions is he giving you in the Holy Spirit? What is he calling you to do to live for him and his kingdom in this life? Uh, I pray that that would be the challenge and exhortation for all of us here today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that you love us, that you're sovereign, that you're good. And so when we face trials and hardships and difficulty, we can lean on you, we can rest in you, and find hope in you. But not just that. Your love and your sovereignty and your goodness in our life should move us and provoke us to go out into the dangerous places of the world, into the places that are uncomfortable, into the places that are unknown and uncertain, to carry out your mission. For your name to be known in every corner of the world. And Lord, I pray that that would be a conviction that you share in our lives, God. As we look at the life of Abraham, I pray that will move each and every one of us and challenge us in our workplace, in our families, or just, it might even be something radical, but that we would approach it knowing that we have a great God. I pray that that would be what moves us and drives us and sustains us, Lord. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray.